A chance to meet you. My name is Aaron, uh, lead pastor for Riverwood. And uh, Ed, thank you so much for uh, lead us in, leading us in prayer uh, for, for dads. I really do hope it's a, a, a really good day for all of you. Uh, but he's right. This is the Lord's day. Uh, and because it's Father's Day, I figured this was a really, really good excuse for me to pull out my box of dad jokes. I uh, got this from my children a couple years ago. It is filled with probably, oh, I don't know, 100 uh, little pieces of paper, handwritten dad jokes. So I just thought, let's just randomly pull out a dad joke. So no guarantee this will be funny. <laughs> you are not wrong, Jake. All right. A termite walked into a bar and asks, is the bartender here? Boom. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's good. When it takes you a moment, you know it's really good. Doctor. Sir, I'm afraid your DNA is backward. And? <laughs> Couple more. Uh, son, hands dad his 50th birthday card. Dad, you know, one would have been enough. <laughs> oh, that's good. All right, last one. Oh, I pulled out two. We'll make it one. I was about to tell a joke about sodium and then thought, nah, nah, nobody would get it. <laughs> if you need that one explained to you, ask me afterwards. Uh, that one was good. All right, well, uh, this uh, past February, uh, a senior in high school named Ben Keeter from Iowa City High uh, managed to become the 32nd high school wrestler to win four state championships. But he did something else that only six other people have done. He was the seventh guy to go completely undefeated his entire high school career. Never lost against a, a fellow Iowan in a, a sanctioned high school event. In fact, Ben went on to uh, win Worlds, even though he hadn't even graduated high school yet. Uh, he's going to be going to the University of Iowa to attempt to both play football and wrestle. Uh, the guy is just a tremendous athlete. So it should be no surprise whatsoever that Ben was named the Dan Gable Wrestler of the Year for the state of Iowa in 2023 for the Class 3A. Now, if Ben hadn't been on the scene and hadn't achieved everything that he did, I can pretty much guarantee you who would have won the Wrestler of the Year. Waverly Shellrock's very own Ryder Block. Because like Ben, Ryder's headed to the University of Iowa to wrestle. Like Ben, he also won a state championship this past year. And like Ben, it wasn't his first. He won three state championships. The one that he did not win, he lost in the finals to a future teammate who wrestles for the Iowa Hawkeyes and was winning his third title when he beat Ryder. And that one loss in the finals in state was Ryder's only loss his entire high school career. So if, if Ben Keeter hadn't been on the scene... I can guarantee you all the headlines would have been about Ryder Block. Now, after his finals win, winning his third state championship, Ryder is being interviewed by several journalists, and a video is being there, and you can hear one of the journalists on the side ask him, it's now the end of your career. As you reflect back upon it, what do you appreciate most? I was expecting to hear, you know, I really appreciate the support of my parents. 
I really appreciate my coaches, really appreciate my teammates. I appreciate the fact that we've achieved you know, great things as a high school team, winning three state championships. I've won three individual championships. Like, there's so much that he could be appreciative of. And yet, he didn't say any of that. In fact, he kind of stopped for a second and goes, well, uh, this is probably going to sound dumb. And then he says what he appreciated most was his one loss. Because he said that one loss motivated him to never lose again. Now, we can debate whether or not that's mentally, emotionally healthy. But my point is this, that it was Ryder's worst day that led to his greatest days. Today, we are going to see the early church experience its worst day, which is saying a lot. As we've been studying the book of Acts, we've already seen the church have to, to go through persecution. The, the religious leaders have been putting all sorts of persecution against them. We've also seen them have to navigate a couple of internal conflicts. And yet all of that is going to feel like a walk down the beach compared to what we're going to see today. Today, we're going to see not just verbal abuse, not just physical abuse. We're going to see the first martyrdom. A man is going to be killed because he believes Jesus is the Messiah. And that one moment is going to create such confusion, it's going to scatter the church, and it's going to appear that the church is no more. Yet today, I hope to show you how this very bad day in the life of the church ends up launching it out into its greatest days. So if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to uh, Acts chapter 6. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, don't worry about it. We'll be putting most of the scripture on the screen. But at Riverwood, we are totally fine with digital Bibles. So if you have a Bible on your phone, feel free to pull that out. Or if you want, want a paper copy of the Bible, we have some on our resource table. We'd love to give one of those to you. That would be our gift to you so that you can not only use it here on Sundays, but you can use it any and every day of the week. We just really believe that your learning will go so much deeper when you have your own copy of the scriptures. So please get one and then feel free to use it any and every Sunday here. Um, most of you know that I swim uh, three days a week, attempt to swim three days a week for exercise. And uh, I've kind of created my own little pattern, my own little program for myself. And, and so that means that on Wednesdays, I do my long swim. It, basically, when I go, I just keep swimming. And uh, if everything goes as planned, I'll swim for the next 40, 50 minutes. Now, lately, I've been suffering a lot of cramps, and it's really stunk. But if Wednesdays go the way I want, I'm just going to keep going. And so what I've noticed is that on Wednesdays, after I do my stretches, which I also do on Mondays and Fridays, I put on my goggles, I get in the water, and then I just find myself taking this big, deep breath because I realize I'm not stopping for the next 60, 70, 80 laps. Today, we're going to take a long swim through Scripture. We're going to go through, we're going to finish up chapter 6, we're going to do all of chapter 7, and we're going to dip into chapter 8. Now, before you start thinking this is about to become the most boring sermon you've ever heard as we read all of that, we're not reading all of it. That's why I want you to have your own Bible, because I want you to go back and read this. We're going to hit the highlights, though. But we're still going through a lot of Scripture. And so, because we're getting ready for a long swim, it just seems really appropriate for us to kind of just take a breath. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are about to come to your Scriptures. These words that you wrote so long ago— that have impacted so many generations. And now we find ourselves on this day, on Father's Day, coming to these scriptures. And so we ask, Father, for you to help us to not just try to read our biases into it and get whatever we want out of it, 
that instead we would be so attuned to listen to you, our Heavenly Father, to hear what you have for us today. Each person in this room, each person online, each person listening to the podcast is at a different place. And so, Father, it is absolutely ridiculous to think that I, as one man, can somehow speak exactly what each person needs. And so that is why I am so thankful for your Holy Spirit, who's able to take my words and translate it into what these hearts need. So, Father, I pray you open up those hearts, you open up those minds, that the skeptics would be willing to listen, that the hurting would find themselves comforted, that the the comfortable would find themselves uh, uh, challenged, that you do what only you can do so that you can help us to become the people you want us to be. So, Father, use my words, use your word to accomplish what you want to in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The reason we are doing such a huge chunk of Acts today is because we're basically looking at the story of one man. Uh, You actually, if you heard last week's sermon, you actually met this guy very, very briefly. Uh, If your Bible's open there to Acts 6, uh, let's go back to the section we saw last week. Uh, In verse 5, we get to meet this guy. Basically, what was happening was there were certain widows who were being discriminated against because of their race. Racism was happening. And so the elders, the the apostles step in, and they put together this plan to help make sure that all of the widows, all of the poor, are being ministered to. And so they bring the plan to the church in verse 4. And in verse 5, we see that this plan pleased the whole gathering. So the church is gathered together, and they, they hear this plan. They're like, that's a good idea. And in the plan was that the people needed to appoint these deacons, these leaders, to oversee this ministry to the uh, widows. And I want you to notice they they begin to list off the, the deacons. The very first one they mention is Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are six more guys that get mentioned, but none of them have a little description put after them. Have you ever watched a movie, and when the movie gets done, you see the names of the different actors that were in it? They almost always list the first name as who was the the protagonist, right? They get top billing. The scriptures are are much the same way. Often when you see a list, whoever's named first, they're top billing. They're kind of like most important. Luke is wanting us to see Stephen. So he lists him first, but he doesn't just list him. He describes him. He says that he's a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. But it's almost like Luke realizes, you know what? They're not going to get it. They're not going to realize just how important this Stephen guy was. And so when he begins to tell Stephen's story down in verse 8, he gives us another description. He says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So he doesn't just stop it. He's full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He goes on and says that he is full of grace. That, that means he is an incredibly kind man, a compassionate man. He wasn't judging people based upon their worst moment. He's judging them based upon God's love for them. He figures if God could love him and give him grace, then he could give grace to others. And so he's a man of grace, of compassion, which makes sense. If he's like invited to be a leader, to oversee a ministry to widows, you would want a very compassionate man. But notice he wasn't just full of grace. He's also full of power. Now that does not mean that he was, you know, like probably Mr. Universe, you know, ready to show off his muscles. No, he was, he had this commanding presence Like, there was just something about him. And out of that power, we see that he was doing great wonders and signs. 
We've seen this phrase before. It's usually flipped. It's usually called signs and wonders. But we've seen it in Acts. But every time we see it, it's tied to the apostles. These signs and wonders that God was doing through the apostles were to verify the message that they were preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And so to verify this message, to verify the greatest sign and wonder the world has ever seen, the resurrection of Christ, they're being used by God to do these other signs and wonders. And it's helping people to see it, to believe it, and give their life to follow Jesus. This is the first time we see someone who's not an apostle doing signs and wonders. This helps us understand just how great of a leader and a man Stephen was. Now, the fact that he's doing these signs and wonders means he must be also preaching because God is trying to verify what he's talking about. And so he's not just behind the scenes taking care of the widows. He's clearly also out and about with the people, and he's telling them about Jesus. Some of the people who hear him, they don't like it. They don't, they don't like him. And so they begin to argue with him and debate with him. Look at verse uh, 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So they're hearing him preach about Jesus. They're like, oh, wait, 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 no, 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 no. And they're, they're trying to come against him. They're entering into these public debates. But notice verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This incredibly kind man could just very patiently say, oh, actually, and then he could point to the Hebrew scriptures, which Christians call the Old Testament, and show how it points to Jesus. And everything they were throwing at him, he was able to refute, and he did it with just peace and calm. This frustrates them to no end. And so because they can't beat him in debate, they got to get rid of him another way. And so they decide to try to get him canceled. Notice verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, well, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. To speak against Moses meant you're speaking against the Torah, the, the, the Old Testament, I mean, the, the Jewish law, the, the first five books of the Bible, which Christians call the Pentateuch. To the Jews, this was the Torah. It was written by Moses, and it was the foundation for Judaism. In fact, most of the rabbis would have had the entire Torah, all five books, memorized. It was the bedrock of their faith. And so for him to speak against it clearly means this man is bad. We cannot listen to him. We have got to get rid of him. And so they create these lies. And it appears that the lies are working. Verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen and they seized him and brought him before the council. The, the council is the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. And they would be pointing at the temple as they're saying this. He will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So that's the setup to Stephen's story. Stephen is this incredibly kind, compassionate man who's also full of power. 
And out of this powerful presence, he's preaching about Jesus so much so that it really bothers people that they create lies about him. Those lies have now caused him to get arrested, and he is now having to stand trial. He's standing before the high court, and they're now looking at him saying, defend yourself. And that's what chapter 7 is. Chapter 7 is Stephen turning into his own defense lawyer, and he's basically having to explain himself. But I, for years, was really confused by chapter 7. I, I, I didn't get it. Because as you read chapter 7, what you start noticing is he's just basically retelling the story of the Jewish people. Now, he doesn't start all the way back at Adam. He starts with Abraham, the father of the Jews. But he goes from Abraham to Moses, David, Solomon. And he's just basically retelling the story. Any parents here have little kids who always choose the same book over and over? Like, I didn't even have to look at the book anymore. I could just, like, recite it from memory. And I'm not even that smart. Like, I was so bored. The kids loved it. Man, I'm just like, give me something new. I, I, I'm thinking, like, if I'm on the high court, I'm listening to Stephen tell me the story, and I'm going, we know all this. Why is he doing this? Remember the accusations. He was speaking against Moses and God. In other words, he would be standing opposed to Judaism. And yet all through his speech, you hear him use inclusive language. Our God, our fathers. He's basically saying, no, I believe the same things you do. I believe Abraham is our father. I believe God gave us the law through Moses. I believe he set up David as the, the, our, our best king ever. Like he's working his way through showing, I believe the same things you do. But if that's the case, why did they kill him? Because I've already told you today we're going to see the first martyr. I've also told you that today we're hearing the story of one man, Stephen. And if you have any detective skills at all, you're putting two and two together going, oh, Stephen's going to die. And he does. If your Bible's open there, flip back to the end of chapter 7 or scroll down there. Chapter 7, head to verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, this is the council, when they heard Stephen saying these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So let me get this straight. Stephen, this incredibly kind, compassionate man who has this incredible ability to preach and teach, who's been doing all these great works among the people, has certain lies told about him. He's now exposed those lies for what they are. And yet they still get so mad at him that they drag him outside and they exact capital punishment immediately. Why? What, what happened to make them so mad at this man? We see right at the height of his argument, 
Stephen made this turn. Remember, one of the accusations against him was that he was saying that this Jesus of Nazareth had told them to tear down the temple. All right, so they're talking about the temple. The, the temple was one of the centerpieces. There was inside the temple this holy of holies, and, and that's where they believed God's presence was. And the first temple was built by Solomon. So as he's going through Abraham and Moses and David, he works to Solomon and this idea of the temple. And then he says this, if you're still there in Acts 7, flip back to verse 48. 48. So he's talking about the temple, how Solomon's going to build this house for God. And then in verse 48, he says, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Now he quotes from Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Do not my, did not my hand make all these things? So kind, compassionate Stephen is merely pointing out, really, we're not here to destroy the temple because God doesn't live in the temple. This isn't about a temple. And yet suddenly he says this in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, referring to Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. Okay, oh, oh, hang on. How do you go from kind, compassionate, you know, God doesn't really need a temple, to you, brood of vipers, you evil people. Like, what triggered him? Why is he losing his temper? Because of what comes next in Isaiah 66. You see, he knew what came next, and his listeners, the Sanhedrin, knew what came next. But we might not. So let me read to you from Isaiah 66. This is uh, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to start where he starts, but then instead of stopping where he stops, I'm going to keep going. This is Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, God was saying through the prophet, I'm not looking for a temple. I'm not looking for a house. I'm looking for a person. I'm looking for a people. I don't need a temple. I want you to be my temple. And what I am looking for is someone who is humble, who is meek in character, someone who respects my word. And the Jewish leaders of Stephen's day, who were sitting on that Sanhedrin, they were the opposite of what God was looking for. They were not humble. They were proud. They were not meek of character. They were bullying the early church. They were not trembling at God's word. They're standing against it. Now, they think they, they respect God's word. But just months prior, they had the Messiah, the Son of God, the one through whom God gave the word, in their very presence. And they not only ignored him, they killed him. 
In other words, they are the exact opposite of what God is looking for. And here they are creating all of these lies about Stephen, saying that he's going to try and tear down the temple. And he's saying, no, God's not looking for a temple. He's looking for you. And it's like this kind, compassionate man just suddenly gets so frustrated because he knows the kind of men that Abraham, Moses, David, and Solomon were. He knows that they were humble, that they respected God. And he knows that their stories all point to Jesus. And yet these elders, these leaders on the Sanhedrin refuse to listen and to submit. And that is why he just loses it for the moment. His frustration just comes out and he says, you stiff-necked people, you're uncircumcised of heart and ears. You resist the Holy Spirit. But they do not listen. They don't want the truth. They just want power. They just want things to stay the same. They want it done their way. And so they absolutely refuse to listen to this man. And they grind their teeth and they drag him outside. They stop their ears. They yell at the top of their voices to drown him out. And they kill him to silence him. So the, the church has, has gone from being verbally pressured to stay quiet about Jesus, as we saw in chapter 4. They're, they're being you know, physically abused, as we saw in chapter 5, to stay quiet. But now here in chapter 7, they're being killed to keep quiet. That is a really bad day. I want you to imagine you're on vacation. You're with your family. You're with your closest friends. And it is just going beautifully. It is so wonderful. Like there is just such unity. You guys can just make a decision on what to eat or what to do. There's no arguing. Like there's so much laughter. Like you are just, it's, this is the most wonderful vacation. And then suddenly one of the members of your party is brutally murdered. That's what happened to the church. We were reading about their joy and unity in chapter two and in chapter four. Despite the pressure from the religious leaders, despite the internal conflicts they were having to navigate, they were experiencing something that people longed for. And now one of their friends, one of their leaders, one of their greatest is now brutally murdered. That is a horrible, no good, very bad day. And yet it is exactly what God ends up using to launch them into their greatest days. If you were with us back in March when we kicked off this series in the book of Acts, you might remember that Jesus gave the church a mandate. If your Bible's still open there to Acts, feel free to flip back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, we see Jesus, after his resurrection, 40 days after his resurrection, brings the disciples together. They go on top of this mountain. And Jesus had already told them back in the Gospels that he was going to send his Holy Spirit, that he was going to go away, but that was a good thing. By him leaving, he was going to give them his Holy Spirit. And now he's here to remind them of that. So he says this in chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, this was fulfilled. The first part was fulfilled in chapter 2. On the Feast of Pentecost, this annual Jewish feast, we saw the Holy Spirit come to the disciples and they received power. And we've now seen them being his witnesses. I mean, when the apostles were drugged before the uh, uh, Sanhedrin, they witnessed about the resurrection. After Peter heals the, the, the lame beggar in, in chapter 3, he points to Jesus. They are being very effective witnesses. And that is why the church has gone from, you know, like just, you know, the handful of disciples in the beginning, we've now seen, they're now roughly around 5,000 people. They are being effective witnesses. And in fact, we've seen in chapter 5, verse 16, when, when Ben Schmidt was here uh, preaching, he just kind of glanced over it. But we've seen the gospel beginning to spread out into Judea. There are people in the surrounding region who are starting to come to Jerusalem. They've been hearing about what's happening. And so the gospel is beginning to spread. However, everything we've been seeing through these first seven chapters has all been happening in Jerusalem. The, the people in Judea who have been impacted, it's because they've come to Jerusalem, not because the disciples have gone out into Judea. Until this moment. I want you to notice what happens back in chapter 8. Chapter 8, right after uh, uh, Stephen is killed, verse 1 says this. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this bad day has gotten worse. Stephen has been killed. And it's like all those opposed to the church now feel permission to go and do the same. Saul, who, who you saw very briefly in chapter 7, he's mentioned here again in verse 1, he's now going house to house, pulling people out of their houses, questioning them. If they believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, they are being arrested and thrown into prison, and some of them in, even end up being killed. And so out of this fear, trying to save their lives, the people scatter. It says only the apostles remain. Now clearly there's a few others that remain for him to go house to house and arrest people. But we are talking about a church that's gone from like 5,000 people down to just dozens. Everything that you thought was wonderful and beautiful, we're all together, is now just boom. It appears to be gone. And yet it is on this horrible day that God launches the expansion of the church. Their worst day ends up leading into their greatest season. Now, I believe that as you study the story, there's a number of things that you can walk away with. I, I think you could look at it and go, man, I want to be more like Stephen. I want to be a man full of, of grace, but also to stand for truth, to stand what's right. Or you could look at Stephen's, you know, chapter 7, his, his entire sermon, his defense, and go, man, he knew the story. I don't know the story of the Bible that well. I, I need to know the story so that I could give it at a moment's notice. There, there are all sorts of things that I think you could pull out of this. But, but today, I really want to draw two things out to you that I really, really hope that you'll take with you. First is, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. To paraphrase uh, Joseph from the uh, uh, book of Genesis, when he was talking to his brothers, he said, 
What you intended for evil, God meant for good. I think likewise, that what Satan has meant for evil, God is working for good. Uh, Satan has, Jesus kind of equates Satan with the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's tried to steal the joy of the church through the internal conflicts. He's tried to stop the church through the outward pressure. Now he's trying to kill the church through the killing of Stephen. And yet, God has taken this moment, this horrible moment, and he's now worked it for good because God is sovereign. That means that your worst day is not the end. God is still working. In fact, your worst day might not be God disciplining you or punishing you. Now, don't, don't mishear me. It could be God's discipline. Like, if your secret sin gets exposed, made public, yeah, that's a bad day. That's embarrassing. You might lose some relationships. You might lose some respect from some people. But God is trying to save you from yourself. You're trapped in this. And so he's disciplining you because he loves you and he doesn't want you caught in that. So he's trying to bring you out. And so yes, that bad day is because of God's discipline. But not all bad days are God's discipline. I don't believe the church was doing anything wrong. The apostles were not teaching heresy. The church was continuing to love one another. They're being a blessing to the community. They're even being good witnesses and yet they still have this bad day. Now, years ago, I was at a church planning conference, and I heard a, a pastor talking about this, and he said the church was being unfaithful. Jesus had told them in 1.8, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, but nope, they're happy and content. They're just staying in Jerusalem. So this was God's discipline. When I heard him preach it, I, I fully agreed. But now, as I've been studying this this week, I, I don't think he's right. I don't think this is God trying to discipline them for their unfaithfulness. The, the church was not being hard-hearted. The church was seeking to faithfully share the gospel. You just have to remember, what we're reading here, this is still just months after the resurrection of Christ. These, these people, this 5,000, most of them are brand new to the faith. They've grown up in their Judaism, and now they find out that God has fulfilled everything, and Jesus came. He's the Messiah, and so they're in awe, and they're, they're seeking after him, and they're still growing in their understanding. And the fact that we see the gospel already starting to spread into Judea, yeah, it's because people are coming to Jerusalem, but I still can't help think that the disciples were starting to put together their plan, because if things continued the way they were, they'd end up probably church planting out in Judea, and maybe it would then begin to spread to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So I don't think God is punishing them and disciplining them I think Satan is trying to kill the church and God goes, well, good try. I'm going to use what you intend to kill it to give it greater life than ever before. God takes their bad day and makes it a great day. So yeah, it's a bad day when you lose your job. But it just might mean that God's going to lead you into the career he's always intended for you. Yeah, I know it's a really bad day when the doctor tells you it's cancer and you only have months to live. And yet that might lead you into the greatest relationships you've ever experienced with your loved ones, maybe even with God. Yeah, I realize it's a really bad day when you go through whatever crisis. And yet the changing of that relationship, 
the changing of your finances, that could actually lead you into a much healthier, better season. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that this means that, therefore, you should not take, like, feel the weight of the bad day. Like, feel free to mourn. Feel free to cry. I can guarantee that the church is not giddy over the death of Stephen. They're sitting there happy going, oh, we're being kicked out of Jerusalem. This is awesome. No, they're, they're mourning. They're crying. I would suspect hundreds, if not thousands of them, are questioning God. Why are you allowing this to happen? And yet, notice what they do as they go. Look at verse 4 in chapter 8. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. In other words, they didn't stop what they were given. They were fulfilling the mandate as they are spreading about through Judea. The very next story we're going to see is going to happen in Samaria. We're going to see in the book of Acts it get to the ends of the earth, or at least the known realm of the earth at that time. They're faithful to this because clearly they trust God. Now, this is not blind faith. Well, I just got to do it regardless of anything. They're not being fools. Remember, they just saw Jesus die on a cross months before, and then they saw him alive. So they can look, they know what happened. They know history. So they know they're not foolish, teaching a bunch of lies. They're talking about a historical event they all saw. And if God could work through Jesus' worst day to lead them into their great days, then perhaps God can work through their bad day and send them into a great season. And so they continue to trust. They continue to follow. They continue to preach. Because God is sovereign. The second thing I want you to take away is that God wants you. You heard it in Isaiah 66. God is not looking for a temple made by human hands. He's looking for a temple of your heart. He wants you. But he wants you humble. He wants you meek in character. He wants you respecting his word. Is that you? If not, that's okay. Because too often we read words like that, and it leads us to want to pray things like this. Oh, God, I'm just going to try harder. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible more. I'm going to stop looking at those things online. I'm going to start watching that show. I'm going to stop, you know, eating that or doing that or whatever. God, I'm going to get better. I, I'm, I'm, you're gonna, God, you are going to be so proud of how humble I become. That is not the prayer you need to walk away praying. Instead of saying, God, I'm going to try harder, your prayer needs to be, God, help me become that man. Help me become that woman. Because that kind of prayer shows humility, shows that broken spirit, and says, God, I respect you so much. Accomplish in me what you need to. Because God wants you. This broken world deeply and desperately needs people who will live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. And he does not want you trapped by your selfishness, by your sin, by even your dreams. Because he's got something even better for you. So humble yourself. Surrender. And say, God, do in me what you need to so you can do through me what you want to. God wants you. 
And we see this so powerfully through the cross. God wanted you so much, he refused to let your sin keep you separated from him. And so Jesus goes to the cross to pay the penalty. The penalty of sin is death. But God did not want you dying that death, paying that penalty yourself. Because if you did, you'd be eternally separated from him. Instead, he loved you so much, Jesus came to this earth to go to the cross to die in your place so that he could give you the life he always wanted you to live. But it takes humility to submit to that, to surrender to that. So ask God to give you that humility. Ask him to change you. Ask him to do in you what he needs to and wants to so that he can lead you into that life. So we're going to transition into our time of communion now because we need to go and look at Christ. We need to see him upon that cross. We need to remember he rose again from the dead. And and so if you are a follower of Jesus, I'm going to encourage you during this next time as we sing a song, at any time during the song, to get up and go and get the elements and bring it back to your chair and just spend some time praying. If you've been wrestling with God, if you've been struggling, this is your time to humble yourself, to allow him to break you down, to do in you what he wants to and needs to. If you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know, hey, that's great. We are so glad you're here. We started Riverwood for you. When we started Riverwood, we did not have dreams of just taking from other churches and trying to build some sort of happy Christian club. We believe that this message that God gave the early disciples to go and be witnesses is to continue right here. So today, we're just simply witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. He died on a cross for your sin, but he rose again from the dead to show he has authority over even life, over even death itself. And now he invites you into that. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm going to encourage you, don't worry about these communion elements on these tables. Because those elements, that, that little wafer represents the body of Christ. That, that cup represents his blood, which was shed for you. When, when a person takes those elements, they're saying, I identify with this. Jesus is the center of who I am. And if that's not you yet, then, then don't worry about these things. Instead, spend this time during the song seeking him. God, is this story true? Did Jesus really die on a cross for my sin? Did he rise again from the dead? If so, I want to give my life to you. Because what God is looking for is a humble heart, contrite in spirit, someone who will respect and tremble at his word. And I would love nothing more than for today to be your spiritual birthday where God's Holy Spirit comes to live within you and you become his temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have said a lot of words and yet none of it matters if you are not in the midst of it. So Lord, I pray that you would take what you wanted your people to hear and you would allow it to continue to work. Even though I will cease talking, I believe your work is not done. Lord, I pray for the heart today that has been hard. They they maybe are playing the Christian game uh, they're here on a Sunday. They, they've tuned in online. They're, they're listening to the podcast later. And yet, when they really analyze their life, the way they spend their time, the, way, the things that consummate their thoughts, that the, the they realize they are being stiff-necked. They're being uncircumcised of heart and ear. And they've been resisting you. But God, I thank you that you are the hound of heaven that you continue to pursue your people and you cannot be stopped. 
And I pray that today would be the day they would stop fighting against you and they would surrender. Lord, whether they've known this story for much of their lives or today's the first time they are hearing it, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in such a way that they completely submit themselves to you and you would then make them your child. Father, for the person that has been following you, I pray you would just continue to make us more like Christ, a little bit like Stephen, that we would be full of grace and truth, full of faith and your spirit, that we would be these kind of people, that your compassion would just simply pour out of us, and yet there would be a strength within us. Because this world desperately needs you, God. They are running to all sorts of things, trying to find that joy, trying to find that fulfillment. And yet you, God, want them. So Lord, I pray that you would use us to bring this message to a hurting, dying world. That they'd see it in our actions, they'd sense it in our presence, and they would hear it in our words. So Lord, I pray that as we take of communion, as we take these elements into us, we would feel that, that call, that sense to go, to see the gospel continue to be on the move. And we would have the joy of seeing many people come to know you. And then lastly, Lord, I pray for the person who's having a really bad day. God, I pray that today's sermon, in the midst of their darkness, you would shine a light. That when they thought things were over, they'd realize it's not done that there is something great that still is yet to come. And I thank you, Father, for the hope that you extend us. Lord, for the cynical heart, I pray that you would crack it and shine your hope in there. For, for the person that, that uh, is, has, feels like they've been holding on for so long and they're about to give up, that you'd help them to hold a little longer, that you would be their strength. God, would you turn their bad day into a beautiful season? Would you help their greatest days yet to come and that they would be able to look back upon these really hard days and find themselves to actually appreciate them, realizing it was through them you were working. It was through them that what Satan intended for evil to still steal, kill, and destroy their life and their joy is the very thing that you are using to lead them into something even better and greater. So Lord, I pray that you'd help them to surrender their dreams to you, to surrender their heart to you, to surrender their future to you and allow you to work in this next season as you see fit to make them and mold them into that image of Jesus so that they will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. So Father, as we sing, as we pray, as we take of these elements, I thank you that your spirit is here with us, that you are working, and I pray that you would help us to continue to follow you because you are sovereign and you want us. And it's in the name of Jesus.